you don't have a basketball. It's it's not in your hand. It's gone. You the dog ate it. Remember the dog ate your basketball. It's gone. It's it's a chew toy. Thanks, Jay, for giving that chew toy to your dog. If we're gonna do Twitch, I gotta have a basketball back. <laughs> you realize? Wait, isn't that like that one guy on uh, CNN who does the stocks or or the money management, and he's got a basketball every time there's a a good buy, he he throws the basketball. Does that ring a bell to you? No, because I don't really watch those kind of shows on CNN. So that's interesting that I feel like I'll be copying someone, but I don't care. Oh, okay. Well, ruining my thing. Hey, you know, you got, you got to live your life for the day. Yes. So, all right. We're talking uh, oh, hoops. I'm like 12 and one on Wednesday nights right now, this, this session. And I'm really, I, I, it's time to show up or I'm competitive. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a little ultra competitive. I, I don't like to lose. I don't care if I score. I just want to make sure my team wins. I don't care what it takes. But that's where I get out my competitiveness is right. on a basketball court. Okay. But anyways. Is that so, the, that's the only place? Yes. Are you sure? No. Never when you're skiing. <laughs> <laughs> or, or learning hiking. something new. Or, or hiking. Yeah, okay. I guess. Uh, uh, All right, you're right. <laughs> At the moment, that's the only place I can get out my <laughs> At the competitive juices. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, my dad back in the day had to put me down at the picnic table several times Sit, okay. during games in the backyard because my dad was the coolest dad. He would come home from work and we'd he'd play like he we he knew it was mandated like he all right we're out and then my all the neighborhood kids tend to gravitate to my house so we played football games and wiffle ball games and um whatever we played a lot of games in the backyard and i was the one who had to win every time or make sure the teams were even and yeah yeah such responsibility no i was just a loser i just didn't like to lose (laughs) at all but you know i've found recent pictures of myself when i was young and i always had that number one finger up my index finger up like number one like it always mattered to me i wanted to be number one in everything (sighs) i know is that is that making up for something something no, what would you look down there for? <laughs> you went right down there. I mean, you look right a, in that direction. <laughs> you are such a loser. It's time to it's time to introduce the guests now. We've had them wait long enough. Uh, so we have a repeat. I love our repeats. We have some really excellent people around the Rochester area, uh, and many of which are getting into the cannabis industry. Uh, and Steve Vandewal joined us, oh, I don't remember how many months ago it was. We had a very good conversation. Do you remember, Bob? I wasn't here. Okay. So it was a long time ago. It was way early. I'm looking on. at so, my, my index and I don't see his name at all. So, so he was one of the, he was one of the, in the inception of the podcast. Yeah. I can't wait to I should have looked that up. I'm such a goofball. But I think it was anyways, like summertime, right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it had been somewhere in the twenties maybe. Uh, but I appreciate you being here again. Uh in studio. Uh how do you like that picture window looking out? Like is is isn't that nice? There's just there's something about the the North Star there or the uh the West Star? West Star there. Um, I just love looking out the window here at the studio. Yeah, helps that it's sunny and actually warm out today. I was like, holy shit, this is nice. Yeah, it is. It's a warm winter day. It's a good day to be outside hiking, doing something, enjoying the snow that has fallen over the last week, especially here in Rochester. Today would be a good day to take a hike in like Northampton Park. I went there last week. Bob, when was the last time you were at Northampton Park? Uh, not since I left a body or two there. <laughs> oh, God. I cannot <laughs> believe you just referenced that. Do you know what he's talking about? Not a clue. Funny. You're, and where are you from originally again? We got Palmyra, New York. 
I'm not actually a serial serial killer. I'm not. So, Bob, what are you referencing? So, so the people who don't understand what you're saying, we have a a, a legend of a serial killer. Oh, he's not a uh, he's not a legend. He actually is a serial killer from Rochester. Arthur Shawcross. Yeah. So he uh, he kept a, uh, unfortunately a couple of his victims were found at Northampton Park. Here in Spencerport, so that's his reference, and you're ruining my Sled Hill conversation with you know, that reference. <laughs> you're killing me. Well, I forgot all about that, so it was actually How interesting memory. How can you forget memory. about that? I know, I know, I just, uh, I don't know. I keep thinking if I go back there enough, I might find another body. That's how disturbing it is. And and you've never hiked, hiked there? That's never been a place? Because you're from that area. Well, yeah, I've hiked throughout the park. It's not that big. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's cool. I mean, there's a there's a trail on the creek bed, but they have a rope tow there. Yeah. Um, and it's a really good place. It's affiliated with Swain, and people can learn how to ski there. Uh, the rope tow is actually heavy. I was it actually it was a workout like my shoulder. I felt it the next day. Um, but they have some jumps, like a small little terrain area for kids to learn, you know, smaller stuff. Um, but I made like 30 runs there in an hour and a half last Saturday. Um, videotaping and met a, co- a lot of cool people. Is it so free there day. or $12 for the day? Oh, okay. Yeah. And I don't know how much rentals were because I brought my own skis, but, um, are you a skier? No, that's the place to learn. It's about 80 vertical feet. I thought that, that sounds a good, like a good place to start. It's whew, nice and easy slope. My buddies, uh, two of my good buddies are really good snowboarders and took me to Bristol probably four or five years ago and, you know, took me down the bunny hill. I couldn't even stand up. But the first time that I went down and made it up, they're like, we're going up to the mountain. So I spent that whole day just yard sailing down the mountain and I haven't been back since. So I think I need a lesson. I feel bad for people whose friends do that. You know, um, you almost got to set the expectations like, okay, we're going to take you, but we're really going to spend half a day away from you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to let you progress on the beginners and then hopefully we can take you on a couple. Instead, everybody's so like, he's an athlete, he can handle it. And it's not about being an athlete. It's about understanding the physics of the yeah. mountain too. Um, so did you snowboard or ski? I snowboarded. Oh, that's even... It's just so counterintuitive. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm pretty good on my own two feet. The second I get on a snowboard, a skateboard, any sort of board, wakeboard, I suck. It's okay. You know, it took me a while to, to understand that too. Um, when I first was learning, I learned how to wakeboard first, but I could never skateboard. Um, but what about you? You know, you weren't a skateboarder, were you, Bob? No, I was in ski club though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were a skier. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, miss good it. Skier. I miss it. Swain, Swain was my place. I wish we could get you out. I would like to get you back out. Yeah, I just saw the movie uh, Downhill. Have you seen the previews for that? Mm-mm. It's it, it was it was actually pretty good. It wasn't a comedy. It's uh, with Will Ferrell and uh, Ju- Julie Louise Dreyfus. Is that how you say her name? It's got slight humor in there, but it's more about relationships. And they were um the f- Alps. They were skiing down in the Alps, and it was a really 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 good movie. Interesting. Yeah, Will Ferrell Downhill. Yeah, and he skis. Is this a Netflix movie or? It, no, it's at the theater right now. Well, oh, cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. I love ski movies. I'll watch, you know, old Warren Miller films. I'll, I'll peek at every once in a while. His voice, Warren Miller is, have you ever watched a Warren Miller film? I don't think so. Wow. Holy smokes. I'm going down way too bad road tape. Warren Miller was a, a, a old ski guy in the 70s who made films like, 
he was one of the original guys. You see all the old ski videos. Yeah. It was usually his films, and then he made a film every year. And the thing would be is it would travel around the country in different theaters, and skiers would all go, and it would be like the month before ski season, so it would be like the rev up. So he would make a movie and then edit it all summer, and then the fall he would run it around everybody, and skiers would get passes. So my son would go every year. It was a, a routine. We would go to the auditorium theater here in Rochester and watch it, and then by going you'd pay a fee, um, and the, and it's all skiers and the movies are about guys hucking it and, and, but it's also showing you different areas in the world where people can ski where it's unique. Like there was one, they go back one time where they're in Asia and they're hiking back and they're taking these donkey sleds up. And next thing you know, they find this village where these, you know, it wasn't even that much of elevation where these villagers were using these big sticks and cross country skis and leather straps and going down these hills with the, with these. And they yeah. were like, yeah. And the, and the whole, like a segment was just about showing this tribe and how they ski in, in the bank country of Asia. Like, no kidding. yeah. Like, so this is, you know, and you're just sitting there and then they have other things where people are doing crazy stuff stuff, you know, or they take you to the Alaska backcountry. So Warren Miller's done this every year. And my son, and I used to go, we used to get a free pass at like Gore, uh, you know, ski free there, ski free Whiteface. So you'd go and get all these deals to go. But, um, you know, and the whole crowd would be so intense. It's just a great energy thing. So actually I should go to one and hand out my stickers, my ski video stickers. That probably actually help me get more. Oh, see, I like it. A little market idea popped up in my head. Yeah. We're, we're digressing. We're Oh, hold on. We're going. We're going right now. All right. So speaking of marketing, you have changed a little bit what, what your path has been over the last year. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you're going, Steve, and what's going on in your life because it's exciting stuff. Yeah. it's uh, My life is pretty much uh, engulfed in cannabis. Um, I wear a lot of hats in the industry. Uh, I've been working on uh, my brand of cannabis products for, you know, it's kind of my baby, my company, Tiva, um, which has been a long process, but that comes with the territory of, you know, making plant medicine. Um, that we'll be launching that in the next, uh, next month. We're in the middle of our, our doing the rebrand, uh, hired a really talented designer out of New York city. That's doing all of our packaging and stuff and been really putting all my efforts in R and D and really formulating some powerhouse medical grade products. Um, really my goal is always to create medicine using community agriculture. You know, I love the idea of being able, you know, to make not just CBDO, but like really truly full spectrum plant medicine using agriculture from our area. I think that's really special. Um, it's not something that happens overnight, but you know, kind of get it. That's where I got my start in cannabis is with building my brand. Um, I also, my business partner and I, who is a, a, a financial expert, he's a, a registered attorney in New York. He, uh, we started a, a small advisory firm, consulting firm called Vandwall and Taylor. Um, and we're really helping people get into the craft cannabis industry. Um, we help farmers get set up for certified organic craft hemp grows in preparation of transitioning them into the adult use uh, cannabis industry, you know, hopefully when it legalizes this year. But, um, and obviously, last but certainly not least, is I do a lot of advocacy work in this space. Um, I'm a founder and former member, uh, former deputy director of Rock Normal. I've since then, you know, stepped away from the organization and really took uh, kind of a rogue active advocacy approach when working with a couple other organizations in the um, in the state. But um, being able to get some some pretty good recognition from the from the state government, I had the opportunity to testify at the joint legislative budget hearing on taxes uh, a couple weeks ago in Albany. That was the Senate Finance Committee and the Assembly Ways and Means Committee. And those are really the two big uh, financial uh, um, committees in both houses. 
Um, and I was able to present to them uh, a tax proposal that my colleague Jason Klimek wrote um, and really kind of advocating for them to lower the, to change the tax regime of the new uh, cannabis bill right now uh, in the CRT and in the MRTA, which both have pretty similar tax structures. Um, we're looking at a, a highest in the nation effective tax rate of 46%, and that is incredibly problematic for a number of reasons. Um, what we see in other states that have legalized is that when you, you know, implement exorbitantly high tax rates like that, these supply chain costs get passed on to the retail sector and it forces prices at retail to go much higher than the illicit market. And we can't forget that there is already a thriving market existing here. And when what happens is when these prices go beyond affordability, people transition right back into the illicit market. And in case anybody wasn't aware, the illicit market does not collect tax revenue, nor does it have regulatory or safety standards. And, you know, being in the midst of a, a vape crisis where people are literally dying um, and what the CDC confirmed to be primarily caused by illicitly made cannabis products, it is in all of our best interests to mitigate the, the illicit market as best as possible. And that starts with creating a tax structure that allows pro businesses to enter the market. It allows businesses to succeed in the market and to be profitable and allows prices to stay relatively in line with the already existing illicit market. So uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of advocacy work in the space. Um, you know, we're hoping to have a bill passed by April 1st in the budget. Um, this week, you know, I would assume probably in the next seven days, we're going to see the tweaks to the governor's budget. Actually, we were supposed to see that yesterday, um, which will mean tweaks to the CRTA. And we're expected to see an, the MRTA, which remembers the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. That is uh, Senator Liz Kruger's and Assemblywoman Crystal People Stokes bill that they've been put, uh, working on for a couple of years. We're also we're expected to see a version C of that bill. So my my guess is it's you know we're going to find a hybrid between those two bills. Um, and like last year, I think it's really going to come down to tax allocation and social equity. Um, you know, I've I've kind of taken a bit of a step away from. Um, the 50 per, you know, last year we were really advocating for 50% community reinvestment, which was the notion that 50% of tax revenues would go into a, a community reinvestment fund. Um, and that's, it's absolutely needed. You know, there are folks who have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs and entire communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. But right now, you know, there's all, everyone's arguing about where the tax money is going to go before the first legal dollar has even been made. And the reality is, is that no one really knows what this community reinvestment fund look like, looks like. Nobody even know, you know, the, the Office of Cannabis Management, like the board members haven't even been appointed yet. So they want to put all this money into an, an initiative that, you know, hasn't even been really, you know, crafted yet. So um, I've kind of stepped away, you know, really kind of educated myself on the reality of like what community reinvestment could actually look like. And I don't know if you saw the uh, New York State Bar Association came out with a report uh, uh, January 31st that really was a, it was their committee on cannabis law. They uh, came out with a report that was essentially their recommendations on what they'd like to see in a bill. And I thought their their social equity provisions were particularly interesting. Um, and they suggest, you know, instead of earmarking, you know, 
all this money up front to something that's not even hasn't really been formed yet. Why don't we hire an outside uh, firm like the Rand Corporation, who is a they're like an economic uh, research firm, to come in and do you know a a study. Let's figure out exactly how we're going to determine what communities are going to get access to this money, where exactly, the, how it's going to be allocated, who's going to allocate it, and how much money do we actually need to satisfy these goals? Maybe it is, We maybe we really do need 50% community, or of the tax revenue to fix it. You know, there's no amount of money that is going to be able to fix that harm that prohibition has done. But I also don't think that right now we, we don't really know how much money we actually need. So um, I think it's really going to come down to you know, if the legislature really wants to see a specific earmarked amount of money in the bill, um, I'm not sure that they'll budge on that. I think that's really what's going to come down to it and could actually, you know, cannibalize the bill and make it not pass. I hope that's not the case. But I, you know, I think I'm right in, I, I, I believe that the New York State Bar Association's uh, recommendation of um, hiring an outside firm um, doing uh, a two, essentially a two-year study. It's called a uh, two-year sunset. So you essentially will revisit it in two years. You gather data, right? And at the end of the two years, let's figure out, okay, now we determined what the communities that will have access to, what this whole program looks like. And based on that data, we can we can start to see what is a more feasible amount of, of, of tax revenue to be allocated. So I think that's the most intelligent way to do it. I don't know if they, the legislature is going to buy it, but uh, if it, you know, if I had my way, I think that would probably be the, the best, most diplomatic way to do this. But, you know, it's New York State politics and anything's game at this point. All right. Deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> so, folks, you just heard the table of contents for our next two hours. Four shows. Yeah. All right. Number one. First of all, congratulations on the new line. Uh, the rebranding. We're gonna start. We're gonna start there. And we're gonna finish with, with the legislation because the legislation is so huge, and there's so many components to what you just said that I got to pull apart. Um, but I want to start with the basics with you first. Uh, first of all, thank you for getting Rock Normal going and being being a leader in that in Rochester, um, because I believe that in this industry we are gonna need these groups uh, to be stronger and and um, create partnerships. To, to make sure this industry is strong in the state, which is something that you said with your product line, which is which is really important to me. Um, so first of all, Tiva, uh, it, it, you're rebranding. Uh, I'm excited. And I love how you describe it as plant medicine. Um, and you're talking about doing full spectrum. So let's talk about your product lines and, and what kind of products you're looking to make. And, and, and um, uh, I'd love to hear where you're sourcing uh, the New York State uh, distillate and isolate too. Yeah, so we um, all of our products are certified organic from seed to sale. Um, we I do not own a hemp license, nor do I own a processor license. Um, I am providing an outlet for farmers and processors to push their products. Um, so what we do is I've really taken it beyond just full spectrum cannabis oil, full spectrum CBD oil, um, and really started to look at and study other forms of plant and herbal medicine, you know, ancient Chinese medicine, you know, plant medicine is nothing new, right? This, it's been around for literally thousands of years and starting to take more modern uh, cannabis medicine approaches and combining with old ancient and, and modern herbal medicine approaches and, and, and fusing them together to create ailment specific products. So, you know, really the big three, um, in my opinion of what people are really using CBD for, especially our pain, anxiety, um, and sleep. You know, I used, I took myself off a, a whole bunch of pharmaceuticals a couple of years ago, which is really what, you know, 
fueled my pa- passion for this industry. You know, I was on Zoloft, 30 milligrams of Adderall, Trazodone to sleep. I was, uh, I was being held together by uh, this pharmaceutical concoction that at that point was really taking a negative toll on my life and it put me in a really, really dark place. Um, yeah, you, you can't really even like fathom feeling the way that you feel until you feel that way. And it's like, holy shit, like those, that's pretty scary. So, and you had described that in the, the last episode. So I don't want you to, sh- to shortchange it for people who didn't listen to that episode. H- how long did you go through that? And explain your transition for people again, please. Yeah. Well, you know, entrepreneurships come, comes with its ups and downs and just life does. So I'm, I'm not the only person in the world that deal has dealt with anxiety or depression or, you know, stress or whatever, but you know, when you're kind of on this, this journey of, you know, doing things your own way and, you know, foraging your own path, you know, I've, there's not a whole lot of, you know, people in my immediate circle, my family that have taken that path. So to most people in my inner circle for a long time, I was kind of unrelatable. And, um, you, you have to learn to filter out the noise, you know, when are you going to get a real job? When is this going to end? You know, blah, blah, blah. And no, you don't make any money your first couple of years. I was poor for three years. I was so poor. I was making like, I lived on less than a thousand dollars a month for like three years, right? I was in poverty, but you have to learn to just kind of see through it. You know, I was passionate. There was nothing that I could do. There was nothing in the world that anybody could say or do to stop me to get to where I wanted to go. I would live on the streets for years before I, you know, there's nothing that it could stop me. And I made that very clear to everybody. It's like, you're either with me or you're against me, but I don't have any room in my life at this point for bad and negative energy. So, you know, you don't have to agree with it, but I need you to support me or I'll probably find, you probably won't be in my life anymore. And that's just the hard reality of like being on this journey is like, you're a byproduct of the energy around you. And if you constantly have naysayers in years saying you can't do this, or you're never going to make it, you gotta, you gotta keep it out. You gotta keep it out. And you know, it's, there's people that I used to be really good friends with that I don't really talk to anymore. And it's, you know, nothing personal, but like, you know how it goes. You have to stay on the straight and narrow. You have to surround yourself by positive people and people that, you know, uh, support you. So, you know, I found myself, um, getting held together by this, you know, these pharmaceutical drugs. And I uh, luckily had this friend who, uh, really more of an acquaintance, but I don't know if she realizes how much of an impact she had on my life by introducing me to CBD. Um, so I started taking CBD to help me sleep. And within 40 days, I was off the Zoloft. I was off the Trazodone. And still to this day, I only take five milligrams of Adderall a couple times a week compared to the 30 a day I was taking for two years. So it's been a tremendously impactful on my life. Um, and you know, that's really kind of started to fuel this, this desire to like really understand what about this plant allowed, saved me. Like what, what is about it biologically and chemically that not just me, but like people are using this plant for a, a, a wide spectrum of ailments, pain, you know, things that are at some point were deemed uncurable, you know, intractable epilepsy, all that stuff. And it works, you know, these are you know, the natural product industry is kind of has mixed reviews because there's a lot of trash out there. Cannabis is a natural product that worked works. It objectively works. And when you have craft cannabis products or well-made products, it is, in my opinion, the most effective medicine in the world, right? So, um, yeah, long story short, I really kind of, you know, my own personal um you know, journey with pharmaceuticals and going down that realm and like really educating myself on the science behind cannabis led me into this realm of, hey, now I want to make my own products. You know, I was in private labeling for a while. That's where I got my start. But I really have always, I love making things. You know, I want to create something new. Um, so really kind of, I created this process um, in this certified organic, you know, this whole process of like, 
we're only going to make products from small, we're only going to buy hemp from small farmers. It's going to be certified organic. And if they're not certified organic, we're going to help them get there. We only use supercritical and subcritical CO2 processing at a certified organic processing facility. All of our products are bottled and labeled and sealed in a certified organic packaging facility. So it's, we, we've been able to really, you know, it's a complex supply chain. And for me to, to own all of those steps under one roof would be to the tune of millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and a huge team. And just when there's no really like institutional funding to be able to build that, the, your only option right now is to start assembling these supply chains of upper, other reputable vendors. So, you know, my goal is to be... The organic a, network, to, to put organic products out there for what you're doing. Uh, how long has it taken really to put that together? I mean, people I don't think understand from the field where the farmers have to be certified on every acre of things grown. Oh, yeah. To every facility that it transports through and products that it's touching. So um, it, it's amazing um, to be able to, to find those partnerships to create products at a, at a price that's reasonable for the retail market. Yeah. And, you know, it's... Uh the, the organic certification is tough. I'm working with a client right now on his NOFA certification. It is complex. It is detailed and it should be right. It is, you know, true organic. They want to know if what, you know, is there any uh, adjoining fields is it, that might have pollen drift or not or GMO drift or whatever? Or like, what about the water that you're using? What about the equipment that you're using? Everything like truly certified organic and organic farming is very tough because weeds are a problem and invasive species are a problem. And if you have a hemp field, you have to go out there not only to check for males, you got to go out there and make sure that you are, you know, there's weeds aren't overtaking your crops. So we help with cover. We help do soil analysis for our crops. We help with with cover crop, uh, custom cover crops, uh, so we can help people really uh, delve into the, uh, this organic farm uh, farming initiative. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the organic standards are very tough, and not, there's a lot of people claiming that they're organic. You know, the big loophole is people claim their products organic, but what they don't tell you is that all they're using is USDA certified organic coconut oil, right? There's very few certified organic seed to sale cannabis products out there, right? And you know. It's, in my opinion, the best quality products. They are organic, hands down. And uh, I don't know. And it's complicated. I could easily, you know, take another route and, you know, say, screw it. People could spray. It's much easier. But, you know, our products are made with integrity. You know, our products are designed not to get people high. They're designed to make you feel better and to improve your quality of life. And when, when that's the goal of your company, when that's really the mission is I want to make healthier people. I want people to get away from harder drugs like I did. I want people to be able to live longer, have quality of life, help, the, you know, be able to see their kids and their grandkids go up, be able to live pain free. In order to do that, there are a specific amount of steps that you have to follow, which can be painstaking and expensive and, and, and tedious if you want to do that. And a lot of that comes in, you know, making sure your products are certified organic. So um, it's been a, it's been a, uh, a work in progress. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's been kind of my baby for two years, but we're gearing up for a big launch in the next couple months. And I'm really excited to see it come to fruition. I really am. I'm happy for you. Thank That's you. good. Yeah. Now, what kind of products are we going to be looking at? Are we looking at different types of tinctures? I like how you keep using the word craft. So, so your products are going to continue to change and evolve. Yeah. Craft can't. I mean, I tend to look at the craft beer industry uh, and craft beer and wine industry rather in New York is a, is a good uh, kind of uh, 
platform, you know, something to, a good comparable to craft uh, uh, cannabis. But the reality is craft, you know, in, in wine and beer is taste, right? The more craft it is, the better the taste. In cannabis, the more craft it is, the more medicinally efficacious it is. So it's like, it comes, you know, yeah, maybe we have to spend a hundred hours trimming hemp so we can extract, you know, it, there's all these different, you know, hands-on things that, you know, the problem is that it does make, you know, my products are going to cost more than your average product. And so that, I've always kind of dealt with, you know, that's kind of like a moral issue for me because I don't ever want to prevent somebody from being able to have their medicine because these products work. They work, they objectively work. They are truly powerful. You know, they're potent. You know, we, we run with a 1500 milligram at the minimum uh, bottles. Um, but it comes to a point like if you, you could either go to the gas station and buy, you know, a 30 pack for 12 bucks of Bud Light or you could buy a four pack of, you know, a 10% IPA and people do that. Not, I'm, you know, I'm not in this to make a billion dollars and to build the next Anheuser-Busch of cannabis. I have no desire, right? I want to have a- That's a great analogy. I like that analogy. So it's, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's about understanding my craft. You know, there is a ceiling on the, on the craft market, right? There's a reason why you don't have craft breweries that are huge corporations, right? Because there's a ceiling on, uh, you know, craft, right? And I, and I'm okay with that. I think a lot of these people that got into this industry don't realize that, you know, just like in anything, when you try to scale something, quality will eventually go down. And I will not, the second that, you know, I get to a point where I see, okay, if I make this decision, my craft, my quality will go down. That's where, that's where it stops. Right. So, um, yeah. And I hope to be able to teach people the same, you know, I, you know, there's, I don't want to just have all this, these secrets and knowledge of this plant to keep to myself, right. There's a lot of people out there. Take it. You know, I believe in free education. I like to talk about what I do. I don't keep a lot of secrets because, you know, look at Elon. Elon doesn't patent any of his shit and he's like got the number one car brand in the entire world. So I believe in, you know, education and, and conversation conversations like this, uh, they, they cultivate, you know, progress. And I think that with this industry, what we need, so people need to stop being so close to their chest with all this stuff. You know, this is a plant. It's been around forever. Nothing is new. We need to be sharing this information, teaching people how to implement and, you know, getting towards a, a time where cannabis is normalized and it's just as, you know, common as having a glass of wine at night or, you know, whatever. So I think we're on our way to doing that. Um, kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent. No, part. you're you're in the correct exact way I, uh, what I want to talk about. I mean, consider this. How far removed are we from having this plant as part of the pharmacopoeia of every country in this world? Like like what 1930 or something. Uh, I mean, it was mandated to be in every pharmacy. And the way you're speaking of it is the same way that it used to be treated in back in, for thousands of years. It's how it should be. You know, it's, cr it's crazy to think that, you know, we can talk about money and business, but like there are literally still people incarcerated or going to jail over this plant. It's absurd and it keeps me up at night. And I hope there will become a point where there's no longer a single body in prison for this plant, right? We, I, we have to get there. Um, but I think, you know, pharmaceutical, from a ph pharmaceutical perspective is that the a lot of people worried that big pharma is going to come in here and take over. And in some capacity, they probably will. But the pharmaceutical industry is very much like a, a single molecule, molecule oriented, right? You go to, you go to the doctor for a, uh, for anxiety, they're giving you a molecule. They're not giving you a full spectrum product, but with that single molecule comes a side effect, right? Now, maybe, you know, for me, for example, I was taking Adderall. It was helping me with my ADHD, but now I was staying up. You know, I couldn't fall asleep. So in comes the 
Zoloft, right? It, or in comes the Trazodone. So t- you have all these people that are taking all these different drugs, which is like modern day pharmaceutical full spectrum medicine. But that's how the R&D infrastructure and the scientific infrastructure are, are, of the pharmaceutical industry is designed for one molecule. What Although we know very little about cannabis right now, we know the tippy top of the iceberg, but we do know right now that it's factual and undeniable that cannabis works best as a whole plant extract. And when you start pulling chemistries out of the plant, like THC or terpenes, it becomes less effective. My question is, how do you begin to research a plant that has hundreds of different molecules that we know have to be present in order for it to see its true potential? The pharmaceutical industry and the way they do R&D is not designed for full spectrum uh, medicine. So I understand, you know, they're coming in, they're doing THC isolates, they're doing, you know, Epidiolex is, you know, a CBD isolate. These products are less effective and vastly more expensive than a, a quality CBD product that you could buy at, you know, Trader Joe's, literally. So it's like, unless Big Pharma is planning on completely redefining and reformatting their infrastructure, I have a hard time believing that they're going to really be able to get a good foothold on this industry, knowing what we know about how, you know, the efficacy of full plant, uh, whole plant extracts. So, so what Steve is talking about is through the extraction process, there's definitely, there's are definitive different models you can use. Ethanol extraction, CO2 extraction, uh, you can pull the terpenes out through the source, then the short path falling film, uh, there's the, the short path distillation, there's different ways that you can pull all these molecules out and, and isolate someone. So, so CBD products, out there that are truly made from isolate. So CBD isolate, folks, that is, means you're just pulling that one molecule out of those plants. That's it. You're just really targeting it. You're putting it through multiple steps. And while that could be good for maybe inflammation or, 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 or you know, studies aren't, aren't conclusive enough to know exactly what CBD isolate itself and, and what that's doing for people, my personal experience is showing that it's really good for inflammation and it's really good to, to really settle yourself a little bit when, you, when you're anxious. Um, but it is not uh, as good of a value as that entourage effect where you're getting all the different cannabinoids in there. You want to have some CBNs and CBVs and CBGs and your THC and maybe your THCP and all these things that now we're, we're coming up and saying, holy smokes, there's this molecule renaming this and that. Um, and how is it affecting our body? Dr. Smith from U of R, uh, I love what his business model is because this is what he's talked about uh, for a lot of months for all of us and where he wants to pull all these apart and, and introduce them to different things that we deal with as human beings and figure out which of the cannabinoids are really helping. Um, and that kind of goes to your model with craft. Like, and, and then we can get to the farmers to say, all right, let, let's get it. Like, we're finding that 10 things together are really helping people with this and we can start making strains and work with Cornell. And, and, yep. and that's where we're going to get to, but we're not there and how, how long do you think we, till we get there? Um, I think that we're getting there, right? I think we're getting there with hemp, which is good news. I think what needs to happen in order for, the, you know, for us to really leverage our academic infrastructure is that we have to lift the Schedule 1 uh, schedule, which is ridiculous, right? Schedule 1, to be a Schedule 1 substance has to have two parameters. You have to have a high potential for uh, abuse uh, or addiction and no medicinal value. Well, there are now, what, 36 states, both red and blue states. Kentucky is en route to leap for, uh, to have medical marijuana, right? Says that this plant is medicinal. So at what point are we going to say, okay, maybe this doesn't need to be a schedule one? The problem is, is that the, all the criminality and everything around, you know, the kind of the, the, 
the bad part of cannabis, right? The reason why people are going to jail, the reason why businesses can't have access to financing and, and business is lies in it because it's a schedule one. Also, you know, we talk about 280E in the supply chain and being able to write stuff off. 280E says, and I hope I don't botch this language, that it allows businesses or doesn't allow businesses to write off business expenses except cost of goods sold if you are a business of a uh, of, of essentially a, a crimp schedule one substance, right? I.e. all legal cannabis businesses, which goes back to our tax argument. Uh, all legal THC recreational yep. and medical yeah. businesses. You're absolutely right. He's yeah. right 100%. So you you no longer have you know the ability to write off a substantial portion of your of your business expenses, which cause your costs to go up. Everything gets more expensive, which is why you know it's really important to keep tax structure down. You look at a fifteen percent excise tax, fifteen percent retail tax, municipal tax, all this you know. On, you know, a, imagine trying to run a small business, right, where you can't just go to the SBA and get an SBA loan. You have no way, you have no startup capital, right? You are getting taxed at 46%. You can't write off any of your business expenses and you're already competing with an industry that's been here for the last 80 years. Your chance of success is uh, virtually zero. And that's what we're trying to convey. It's like, you want to talk about having a craft market? Great. The craft market is best. Look what the craft beer and wine industry is. It generates like over $3 billion in economic output a year and has created the equivalent of 20,000 full-time jobs. And according to a Rockefeller Institute report that came out last year, the cannabis industry will surpass that if and only if you implement a sensible policy. And I'm sorry, but a 46% tax rate is the most nonsensical, irrational thing that you could, I mean, you have 11 other states to look at as case studies, right? And, you know, we're not going to get it right. We're not, there's no, no one's going to get it right, but you can get it relatively right. You can be better than everybody before. And what the data continues to tell us over and over is that high tax rates mean high prices, which means collapse of the market. I look at California, their industry is literally collapsing post prop 64 and it causes a rise in the illicit market. It's fucking textbook. It happens every time. And I hope, and I pray, and I, I ask the, the policymakers who are in charge of this to listen to us because it will make or break this industry. Yeah, I agree. That's the biggest challenge on the table. Um, before we get to the advocacy and, and, and all that, um, talk a little bit about your your partnership, uh, the Vandewall and Taylor, mm -hmm. um, and, and your consulting a little bit. So let's talk about that a little bit to, to finish up this segment. Yeah, I, uh, I got into consulting by accident. Um, I had got entered into um, a brokering I had a buddy who grew, I worked to uh, help my buddy who owns a farm down in Ithaca, New York, um, who grew us a modest seven acre hemp farm last year. And I was helping him and I said, let me see if I can help you sell it. And I got involved with some, some people in the industry and there's a lot of, you got to be very careful about who you get in the bed within this industry. It's more often than not, they're sh you know, shady and illegitimate. So uh, ended up getting into you know the bed uh, with this group and it ended up getting really hairy and there was like really we're looking to put contracts together that were not to benefit the farmer they were pred predatory you know and I realized well this is happening so I have a very good friend who is a brilliant attorney uh, he's a criminal criminal attorney uh, but he comes from the anti money laundering and bank safe secrecy act BS he was the former BSA AML officer for Five Star Bank brilliant guy. And obviously, you know, anti the anti-money laundering side of banking 
directly intersects with cannabis, right? Because, you know, when you talk about suspicious activity reports and stuff like that, it's all intertwined. So we're like, you know, I know cannabis really well. I know supply chain, I know economics, you know, compliance and banking. Maybe we should, you know, start a little consulting business. You know, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Our first year in business, we spent all summer driving to different farms throughout, you know, within a hundred mile radius, 200 mile radius talking to these folks saying, what problems are you facing as a farmer? How can we help? We didn't really know. And after that, you know, what the general consensus was, was all we want to do is grow it. We're really good at growing it, but like the business side, all the other kind of seed to sale stuff, we don't know anything. So we really came on as an ancillary arm to to offer seed to sale solutions. So we'll help you with your compliance documents. We'll help you procuring, you know, uh, certified organic seeds or starter plants. We'll create a crop, we create uh, crop blueprints for people in terms of, you know, helping them, you know, if they don't have all the necessary equipment, we work with other vendors to help rent equipment for them for the day and really teach them how to do this the right way. Because there's a lot of farmers that put a ton of their own money and effort into this industry. And most of them are still sitting on all their biomass. My buddy down at Ithaca Include is sitting on 15,000 pounds of biomass. And he worked on this crop for seven months and people went bankrupt. There's all these horror stories of farmer suicides going around across the country in regards to like, you know, that hemp farming crisis. So our goal is to really to be able to provide a support system, uh, a a platform for these farmers and any folks who want to get into the business to leverage, you know, my experience, you know, I've uh, I've come and encountered so many obstacles and and I'm sure of you have so many things in this industry. There's so many barriers to entry. There's so many obstacles and like, I want to be able to help people prevent from making a lot of those mistakes that I have or kind of help them navigate around all these complicated and technical nuances that come with this industry. So long story short, we're really just a support arm. We want to be able to help people get in the industry. We want to coach them on how to farm properly, how to brand their products, um, really how to do everything from seed to sale with the goal of eventually we can kind of let them go and they won't need us anymore. So there's a coaching aspect to it. There's a consulting aspect to it. But uh, yeah, it's really just about helping people, helping small businesses and helping to get this craft industry off the ground it is needed um the root cause of all this uh he's kind of hit around every side of it but the root cause of all this is especially in new york state but across the country but in new york state 72 processors were approved in new york state to process but i don't think there's one bank that's gave one loan to any of those 72 processors folks and how many of those processes are actually processing? A lot of people with licenses, not a lot of people with actual infrastructure. There's a lot of people aspiring to be processors, and they are realizing to create a GMP manufacturing facility costs um, a lot of money, folks. We're talking about multi-million dollars worth of money, and if banks aren't loaning, then you're talking about only people that have a very large supply of money can even jump in this game. Uh, and the farmers didn't see foresee that as being an issue. Um, and the processors didn't either, I, I don't think, because the 2018 Farm Bill should have freed up that. And we're going to talk more about that in segment two here with Steve. Uh, but thank you, Steve, for joining us for this segment. And, and uh, we have more to talk about. Thank you. Thank you.